For our scripture reading this morning, we take from Galatians 3, beginning at verse 15 through to verse 29, or the end of the chapter, as our reading with the verses 15 through 18 as our text. So the first four verses are our text, and then the rest we'll read for future reference. It's the verses 19 and 20 that we will be considering, Lord willing, next Sunday. By the way, for Ascension Day, if you're inclined to prepare and to meditate on the Word of God in, the, in advance of the service, we're going to be reading, or meditating rather, from Ephesians 4, the verses 9 and 10. 9 and 10, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. That'll be our text Thursday night. But now we'll read from Galatians 3, beginning at verse 15. Hear the word of God. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds it, adds to it rather, once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many, as if, many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There's no male or female or and female. For you are all, all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abram's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That's for the reading of God's holy word. Again, our text is the verses 15 through 18. 15 through 18 of Galatians chapter 3. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, do you ever wonder if fish experience a sense of injustice as they are being reeled in by some fishermen? There they were just minding their own business when suddenly this lovely bit of food came swimming by, flashing in the light, moving, dashing through the water. And so they decided to have themselves something to eat and now they find themselves being scooped into the net of some fishermen and soon enough probably into the pan of that same fisherman. They'd come to get some lunch, not to be lunch. And do you ever wonder as they're being hauled in, wait a sec, this isn't fair. Now, I suppose that's a silly example. 
but it illustrates something that's common in our world, which is the old-fashioned bait and switch. You offer one thing, that's the bait, and then you switch it for something else, the hook, the net, the pan, whatever you want to say. It's like those offers you get for a free vacation at some luxurious resort. That's the bait. Investing in the timeshare, that's the hook. Or you buy a new cell phone, that's the bait. But having all your habits and interests sold as a product to advertisers everywhere, that's the hook. And even churches get into this game. Not so long ago, the most popular form of church growth involved making worship services anything but a worship service. There was no offering, there was no organ or congregational singing, no piano either. There was singers, professional choirs, professional soloists. There was a bit of a pep talk and that was it. But the idea was that if you could get people used to coming to a church service that was nothing like a church service, then eventually you could switch it for the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the oldest trick in the book. In fact, it's what the false teachers were doing with the Galatian churches in their heresy, in their misleading of these congregations. Now, I know that they wouldn't agree with that assessment at all, but if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, then it's a duck. And while we don't know exactly what these false teachers were saying, we can at least form a rough outline of their thoughts, of their argument, in light, in, or as a result of Paul's response to them. If we listen carefully to Paul, we can figure out what they were saying. And it seems as though what these false teachers were saying was that while grace was a good start for redemption, for salvation, for eternal life, you had to do some work to finish it off. Specifically, that while God began with Abraham and called him out of Ur into his kingdom of grace and called him without any kind of, of obligation. Any, Abram was, was, was uh, only required to trust, to, to walk in the way of the Lord. Once the family of Abram was entering the land of Canaan, God said, well, listen, it's not so much grace anymore. Now you have to earn it. Or at least you have to do something to keep yourself in it. Essentially, Grace is the thing that got them in. That was the bait. But now the hook was good works or works that showed that they were worthy or works that earned them an abiding place in redemption. However the argument was phrased, the outcome was the same. You start with Jesus and then you add your obedience. They were effectively saying, these false teachers, that grace was great, but now that you're in, You need a little works righteous too. And the truth is, it's not such a strange position to hold. In fact, it's the position we hold, all of us, instinctively as Christians. Just think, why do you do good works? Why are you here today? Why do you go to church? Why do we insist on faithfulness in our relationships, in our marriages? Why do we condemn foul language? Why do we teach our children to be polite and respectful? What is the reason, the purpose, the goal of all this instruction of raising our children in the fear of the Lord? Why will Chris and Jen teach Moses and their sons to to do good, to be honest, to work hard? Why? 
Is it because if they do those things, they'll be better off? Their lives will be better? Is that the reason that we give? That really, all this obedience is really just about the here and now, the temporal, the momentary. It's about making your life good today. It can't be because you're going to earn salvation. We know that. You can't teach your children to live for the Lord because that'll earn them salvation. We know that's wrong. But isn't it at least the thought in the back of our heads? I mean, we like the grace bit. Absolutely. We love the fact that Jesus died for our sins and that we are redeemed, not for anything we have done. Now let me ask you this. How excited are you about obeying Jesus? Now we face a challenge because the truth is we're not too keen on it. We don't want to do all those things that God calls us to do. And the justification we give for not doing them is I don't have to. We think that works somehow or another has something to do ultimately with our standing before the Lord. That I've done enough I've obeyed enough. I've accomplished enough. I don't need to do that because that's too much. I don't need that. I don't have to walk that way. I have filled up my account with God to the point it needs to be, and I don't need to fill it up anymore. We like the grace bit, but the rules bit about Christianity seems to us a bit bothersome. And that's the echo, that's the Reminder that works righteousness is in us all. Because that cannot be the motivation that we offer ourselves or others for living for the Lord. We are to give ourselves in gratitude for grace received. That's at least in part something of what Paul is speaking to us about and the Holy Spirit through Paul in our text this morning. A text that begins with a rather common analogy. Paul says to us to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. There is some discussion, by the way, in the commentators on whether we should use the word covenant or the word testament or the word will. John Calvin suggests all of them are good, and maybe that's the best way to go. But But if we were to to dig into the arguments for this, I think the word testament or will might come out slightly ahead. And if we were to use the word testament here, then we could uh, dig into some historical evidence that, that, that existed at the days of Paul, in the days of Paul's writing, that would make this text, this passage, open up for us in many ways. Because a testament was a common document that was developed in Paul's day and that was used uh, to, to uh, establish relationships between two people, two parties, two businesses. And what you would do is you would in that testament write out exactly what you're going to do and what the other party's going to do. And then you would lodge that testament with some, some official of the Roman Empire. You would, you would go to some place and say, okay, here's the contract. Here's the thing that we've agreed to. We're putting it in your care, and you hold on to it. Uh, and if we ever have any questions, we can come back to you and we can look at that document. And the reason that's important is because it meant that once the terms of the agreement, once the terms of the relationship were set... You couldn't change them. 
You couldn't sneak into that official's office and find in his file folder your particular testament, pull it out, erase how much you were going to pay for the other guy's widgets, and change the number so that it was less. You had to live with the terms of the agreement once they were lodged, once they were written on the testament and sent in to be stored by the government. Now, I understand that in some respects that's no longer true in our day. There is, of course, the saying that a contract today is hardly worth the paper it's written on. And that's probably true. That is, people break contracts, people break agreements all the time. But you can't change the terms of the agreement. Not even people today can do that. People can say, I'm not going to pay you what I promised to pay you. But they at least acknowledge that they did promise to pay it. That the agreement said, this is what I'm going to do, and this is what you're going to do. That even when you break covenant, even when you break a contract, even when you break a promise, you're admitting that it was a promise and that you're not keeping it, which is a different thing. Well, says Paul, in the same way, there's a similar principle at work here in salvation, which is to say, When God wrote down the terms of the agreement, when God wrote down how he was going to relate to his people and how his people were going to relate to him, when God said, this is how things are going to go, once it was written, once it was established, it could not be altered. There was no going back and saying, I want to change the terms of that agreement. You could break the terms of the agreement. Israel did that all the time. Israel failed to keep the promises of God all the time throughout their history. But they couldn't change the terms of the agreement. They couldn't say, God, you're being unfair. God, that's not right. God, we're going to change. You say that we have to obey you. We've decided that we don't have to obey you. We've decided that we just have to uh, say your name three times a day, and that's good enough. You can't change the relationship you have with God, a relationship that he establishes in his infinite goodness and grace with his people. Even as Moses today, who's been baptized and brought into the, received rather the sign and seal of the covenant, can't say to God, you want me to believe in you? You want me to have faith? No, that's, I, I, I'd rather have a different agreement. If you don't mind, I'd rather have a different term. No, says the Lord, you cannot change the terms of the agreement. Once they're established, they are established forever. And for good reason. God's agreements are gracious they are good, they are kind and, and, and overflowing with mercy. They are initiated by God, defined by God. When the Lord promised Abraham blessings and through him the redemption of the whole world, even us who are sitting here today, God said, I'm going to do that not because you deserve it, but because I've chosen to save you. And there's no going back on that promise. God can't go back after discovering how bad Abram's children are, how bad we are, and saying to himself, well, wait a second, I decided to save these people, but you know what? To be honest, I thought they were going to be more grateful. And they're less grateful now. And so you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to change, I'm going to add a codicil to this agreement. I'm going to amend it. It's no longer salvation by grace, people. It is now salvation by grace plus works. When God sent Moses, when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, he was not amending his relationship with the people that he had chosen. He isn't saying to Abram, I choose you by grace. And then under Moses, 
Just kidding. You have to do good works. The Lord promises salvation by grace through faith. The promise that he gave to Abram when he drew him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And nothing can change that promise. And not because God is limited by some rules of jurisprudence, but because he is the unchanging God. God keeps his word. God is faithful to the end. God God does what he says he will. He keeps covenant. Now for some people, maybe even some of us here today, that ought to be a terrifying thought. Remember, the Lord's relationship with his people describes or defines the terms of that relation, what he will do and what we must do. And if God never changes those terms, if God doesn't change the way that he relates to his people, that is, if God always keeps his word, then the only way to have a living, blessed relationship with the God who is, is according to the terms of his covenant. There are no second options, no shortcuts, no addendums or codicils that you can add to get into his good books in any way. There are no multiple roads to heaven. Which means that if you're, not here, if you're here today and you're not keeping covenant with God, then you are in an, in an eternity of trouble. You can say to God, but I'm a good person. And you can think that God doesn't mind the way that you're living your life. But the truth is, if you're not living in covenant with the Lord, if you're not living according to the relationship that He's established with you when you were baptized, then you are breaking the covenant. You are breaking the only way that you can have a living relationship with God. Then you are in danger of his judgment and his wrath as surely as you were baptized. You can say, but, but, but. But you can't change the terms of the relationship after the fact. Which makes living with God, in covenant with God, in faithfulness with God, extremely important for every one of us. No less for Moses, who's baptized today, than for any of us who have been baptized in our time. But there's good news. Paul continues his argument by saying, now the promises were made to Abram and his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and your offspring, who is Christ. Now Paul understands the use of the collective noun. He knows that the word offspring can refer to one person and it can refer to many people. My offspring can refer to one and many. Paul understands that. Paul's not trying to pull a fast one over people here, but he is reflecting what the scriptures teach concerning salvation from the very beginning to the very end. It starts already in Genesis 3.15, doesn't it? Because there the Lord speaks a word to the serpent and says, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to crush your head. And that's going to happen when this woman has a son, a seed, an offspring. The offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. 
And that's why when Eve had her first son, Cain, there's a suggestion in the naming of her son that she thought, well, here he is. Here's the one who's going to destroy the serpent. But of course, she was wrong. Cain kills Abel, and now the question is, who's the one? Who's the one that's going to kill the serpent? And God says, I will give you another son, Seth. Will he be the one? Well, no, Seth's family, Seth's children, they go off the deep end, and so the Lord chooses Noah. And Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Which is the one that's going to be the blessed one? Which is the one that's going to destroy the serpent? It's certainly not going to be Ham, we know that. Shem is the one that shows the promise of God through him. And then Shem has sons, including one named Abram, whom God chooses, who doesn't have a son for the longest time, because He's barren, and his wife is barren, and they don't have children. There, there needs to be a son. In fact, Abram says to God, there's a problem here. I don't have a son. There isn't one. We need one. One who will destroy the serpent. So God gives him Isaac, and then Jacob and Esau, and then the twelve sons of Jacob. On and on it goes. And as the history of God unfolds, the question repeatedly becomes, who's the one? Who's the one that God promised in Genesis 3.15? Oh, there's lots of offspring, lots of sons. Who's the one? The one who can do what we can't do. The one who can destroy what we cannot destroy. Free what we cannot free. The one who can do what no bull or goat could ever do. The one who could save us by his sacrifice on the cross. The entire Old Testament, you see, is one long history anticipating the one. And that's all Paul's reflecting when he refers in our text to that language of offspring. He says, don't you remember that how the Old Testament is this long anticipation of the one. And this means that the God's promises to Abraham was God's promise to Abraham rather was the promise of a coming one. That's what God said when he said to Abraham, I'm going to save you and I'm going to bless the world through you and you're going to have a son. A son who will come in the flesh, a son who will die on the cross, a son who will rise on the third day again. Oh yes, you're going to have many children, Abram, but the one, the son, the offspring who saves is the one that you are to hope in, that you are to trust in, that you are to look to. Now let that percolate for a minute. The Lord established with Abram that promise of global blessing which we've witnessed again today. Not on the basis of anything Abraham would do, but on the basis of what God would do in his son. What a radically counterintuitive way of approaching a relationship with God. We expect God to say to us, if you do this, I'll do that. If you show yourself worthy... I'll bless you. That's the way every religion presents God to its followers. Except God comes to Abram and says, Abram, you can't do it. You are impotent. You are without life, without power. I will do it. I will do it all. I will do this so you can have that. Every other religion says, do this and you'll get blessed. God says, I'll bless you so that you can live in fellowship with me. 
Now, that doesn't mean that we have nothing to do as Christians. Of course, we must respond to this great grace and mercy in faith. That's Abram's lesson as well, isn't it? He's the father of believers. But even that response of faith does not claim blessings on the basis of anything we've done. We don't say to God, look what I've done. I believed in you, and that's good. Look at how great my faith is. It's so great, you have to bless me. No, we say, God, look at what Jesus did. Look at how he died for me. Look at how he rose again. For the sake of Jesus, Lord, bless me. Indeed, from the very beginning, God's dealings with his people were focused and founded upon the person and work of the coming Christ. And it is that focus that needs to remain in our relationship with God and in our relationship with as parents, as grandparents, as people of fellow believers, as in those who encourage one another. Our focus ought to always be to show each other the wonder of God's love in Jesus Christ. Now, I understand that for some people, For many, in fact, this can't possibly be because it sounds too easy, too careless, too free. A salvation in which God is the one at work, well, that'll make people lazy, don't you see? It'll make them passionless. It'll make them wicked. And there seems to be a truth there because there are some people, even in the church, who take the wonder of the gift of salvation, so glorious and great a gospel, and wave it around like some cheap monopoly, get-out-of-jail-free card. They say, I'm sinner, sure, but you can't do anything about it because I'm saved. But with those people, the problem is not with the gospel. The problem is with those people. They have misunderstood the gospel. The gospel promises restoration and redemption. It is a freeing of guilt and shame. It is not leaving us in the pigsty of sin. The prodigal father doesn't say to his son, go back to those pigs because you're forgiven. He says, come in and fellowship. Let's feast and rejoice at what, you ha- what the Lord has done. God doesn't sanctify our foolish choices, our sinful and wicked choices, saying, go ahead, I'm okay with your hatred of me and your rebellion against me. No, God says, that's the reason I'm redeeming you. I'm saving you from that. God redeems us and delivers us from the cruelty of sin so that we might live in loving devotion to him. And if we don't know the misery of sin, if we don't know that our misery is due to sin, then the problem we're facing is we're still blind. We're still deaf and we're still dumb. That's the kind of thinking that the Israelites had wanting in the trip to Canaan to return to Egypt and its cruelty because it was better than this desert and all of this manna and all of this quail. It's like a prisoner wanting to go back to the misery of prison. It's like a healed cancer patient wanting to get sick again. It makes no sense. There's something wrong with that person. There's something wrong in their head. When we are freed from the grief and and misery of sin, we rejoice to live in the freedom we've been given. A freedom that has been given not by anything we've done, but wholly by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The truth remains that from the beginning, the promise of God has been of His saving work, of His sufficient grace, of His majestic Messiah redeeming for Himself a people. And nothing can change that. Not even the law added 430 years 
later. This is how Paul ends our text. He says, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Paul's point is simply this. Yes, the law came. Nobody can deny that. And that the law has a role to play in the unfolding drama of God's redemption is undoubted. And what that role is, Paul will discuss in the subsequent verses. But what is absolutely of importance now is this. The law cannot alter the relationship we have with God, changing it from one of a grace-based relationship to one of a works-based relationship. God didn't change his mind. God didn't start by saying, I'm going to save you and do everything that's necessary to save you, only to turn around and say, well, on second thought, you need to do a thing or two in order to prove you're worth this grace that I've given. There is no bait and switch here at all. And that is so wonderfully encouraging that it ought to be something we hold precious in our hearts each and every day. Because here's the truth. The law of God does make us feel bad. The law of God does remind us of how many ways we fail. And when we fail, we're sometimes convinced because God's given us this law and he tells us, don't do this and don't do that. And you should do this, and you should do that. And we don't do those things. At the end of the day, we go, oh, I haven't done it again. And we think to ourselves, oh, but God must want me to really try. So I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do better tomorrow. I'm not, I promise you tomorrow I'm not going to sin. How many times haven't we done that? When we struggle with addiction, when we struggle with foolishness, when we struggle with our temper, maybe in a relationship we've had and we've gotten into a fight with our spouse, and now it's the time where we're apart and we think, oh, what have I done? What have I done? I'm never, I swear, I'm never going to do it again. No, you're wrong. You're wrong because sin is more powerful than anything you could face. You can't beat the devil. You can't beat your own human nature. You can't win that fight. The only one who can win that fight is Jesus Christ. By his death upon the cross, by his resurrection from the dead, only in the new life of Christ can you experience victory over the power of sin and death. But you see, The devil doesn't want you to know that. Your human nature doesn't want you to know that. Your nature wants you to keep trying. Keep working. Keep proving your worth. Keep washing your own sins away by your self-righteousness. Keep saying, well, look, I've done so many good things, they outweigh the bad things. Keep telling yourself that. Keep believing it, says your human nature, because it knows that one of two things is going to happen. You're going to despair, get frustrated and discouraged and think to yourself this crazy Christianity and its rules and its guilt and its shame is not for me because I can't keep up with this. I'm getting rid of it. I'm giving up my faith. Or two, if you even never get there, you continue to live your Christian life and you continue to try and prove your worth by your good works and then you die, you will discover that you are not welcome into the place of God's eternity. The devil doesn't want you saved. Your human nature doesn't want you saved. The world we live in does not want you saved. That's why they keep saying, don't do it in Jesus. Don't do it 
in faith. Don't rest in the saving work of your, of his, of your Savior. Prove your worth. Be proud of your Christianity. Show that you are pious. Let the world know that you don't make any mistakes. Don't let anybody look down on you. Don't let anybody disrespect you. Don't embrace humility. Don't embrace repentance. Don't say, Lord, what do I have to do? Lord, wash me. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Don't do that. Don't do that. Stand piously with the Pharisee and say, thank you, Lord, for not making me like this man. Human nature tells us that we can do it on our own. The law exposes that lie. And the wonderful good news of the gospel is this. That's okay. It's okay that your sins are exposed. Because where sin increases, grace increases all the more. Because Jesus is enough even for you. Even for the worst among us. Jesus is enough. His grace is sufficient. Your failures are insufficient. Your inability to accomplish righteousness is not what gets you condemned. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that redeems. For His is enough. Which is a profoundly comforting word for the broken people we all are. We are so broken. We fail in so many ways. Our failures are more than we're willing to admit. So imagine if it were up to you. Imagine that it was Jesus plus. What a fear and guilt would fill your heart. What a pride and self-righteousness would then define your living. Oh yes, pride. Because we need to pretend we're doing good. And self-righteousness, of course, we can't admit failure. Because if people knew the truth, if people found out the truth of the darkness in my heart, man, I'd be euchred. So don't humble yourself. Don't admit errors. Let no one criticize you. Defend, defend, defend. Live with your suspicious eye that wonders, does he know? Does she know? Do they know who I am? Do they know how broken and bad I am? Or lay it all at the foot of the cross and let it go. Because whatever else Paul will say in the following verses about the law of God, this is the heart of what he wants us to understand. That our inheritance and our standing with God are being redeemed and purchased and saved. Which is a full and glorious gift. An eternal blessing of untold wealth and riches. It is entirely dependent upon the work of the Messiah. There is not a single thing that you can do to add to it, to secure it, to accomplish it. All you can do is say, Lord, thank you. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. Let's thank the Lord for it in prayer. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, what a gift. There are those that want to complete the bait and switch in our lives. Our own hearts want to, Lord. They they want us to to start with Jesus. Oh, yeah, that's fine. But then do it on your own. Become self-righteous. 
It's so easy, Lord, but so wrong. Help us to forever rest only in the saving grace of your Son, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. And we're going to sing from 470.